podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to the 10-12, the podcast that covers all 10 teams in the Big 12 Conference, plus BYU, Houston, Cincinnati, and UCF. We are the flagship show of the 10-12 Network and partners with Sports Drink, your water cooler for all things sports and non-sports, a fantastic podcast network in their own right. I'm your host, Philip Slavin. Thank you for joining us on this Thursday. So here was the deal. I decided I would do a podcast focused on the teams that had disappointing seasons, both in the Big 12 and of the teams incoming. And I, and I handpicked five schools in particular, four current, one future, and thought I'll do five guests, get a five, you know, 15, 20-minute conversations, put them in one episode together, and that'll be a great Thursday pod. Well, anytime I decide I'm going to do a collection of 15 to 20-minute interviews, I'll get a couple 15s, I'll get some 25s, I'll get a 30. And so when I put them all together, I ended up with something over two hours for an episode. And I don't really want to put out a two and a half hour episode for you to listen to because I don't think anybody wants to sit through a two and a half hour episode of the podcast unless we're really, really funny. And look, I know I can make some jokes here and there, but I'm I'm self-aware to know I'm not that funny or that engaging for two and a half hours. So we're splitting this one into two episodes. So I got three guests for you today. Ryan Chapman, who covers the Sooners for SI.com. Sam and Dustin of the Scott and Holman podcast, who talk about Houston. And Keenan Cummings of WVSports.com to talk about West Virginia. Now, I've got some more interviews. I will put that episode out on Friday. So keep an eye out for that. But if you're an Oklahoma, Houston, or West Virginia fan, listen today, or if you just want to know more about those three programs and what the next steps are for them to try and rebound, this is the episode for you to listen to. Four great guests, three schools to talk about. I think these are fantastic. You're going to want to check it out. The other thing you're going to want to check out is homefieldapparel.com. The 12 Days of Christmas continues. The stuff they put out, mystery boxes, uh, 20% off on staff selections, that's what was on Wednesday. It's gone now because it changes every single day. They had TCU joggers on Tuesday. You need to be paying attention to homefieldapparel.com if you're not signed up for the emails. Then make sure you're following them on Twitter or just checking the website every single day to see what new deal they're going to put out. They had the sad doggers back in stock. So homefieldapparel.com. Do not miss any of the 12 days of Christmas deals they are fantastic absolutely fantastic opportunity to get some of the most comfortable vintage college sports apparel you will ever wear in time for bowl season potentially or at least for basketball season and definitely in time for christmas if you order quick if you want something under the tree for yourself or for a loved one or a friend go to homefieldapparel.com don't forget that promo code network 12 for 15 percent off your first order and you or someone on your holiday shopping list can be rocking the most comfortable vintage college sports apparel ever. And don't forget, keep an eye out. Those 12 days of Christmas deals continue. And they are amazing. we got three great interviews. We're going to hop right to them. We'll have more for you 
tomorrow on Friday. So listen to this one and get ready. We got more to come. So of the teams who had disappointing seasons, by many team standards, 6 and 6 wouldn't necessarily be disappointing. You'd feel good about going to a bowl game, especially what you would consider the third place bowl game in the Big 12 and the Cheez-It Bowl, but that's not how the University of Oklahoma operates. They operate by very different standards. So a 6 and 6 season in Brett Venable's first year is by what you would expect from Oklahoma given the last what, like two decades. Disappointing. And so to break down kind of how we view Oklahoma at this point and what they need to do moving forward. Very excited to have Ryan Chapman, uh, part of the franchise, part of all sooner. Ryan's just all over the place. I don't, uh, the number of people that we bring on the show who have like eight titles, Ryan is among them and does an incredible job balancing all those hats. By the way, the soft, the softball show you did last year was fantastic. And I hope that that is going to be back on the air this year, but we're not talking about softball just yet. We're talking football. Ryan, welcome back to the show, man. Uh, thanks for having me. And don't worry, we're all living for softball season. That's <laughs> that's what that's what keeps everyone warm and happy. Get, I mean, you talk about the six and six. My mentions were a tire fire last year when Oklahoma was 10 and two. And technically, though, no one thought they were going to win Bedlam. But like a Bedlam went away from putting themselves back in the Big 12 championship game and maybe an outside playoff shot. If you thought that that was torture, try just covering a team that's just pretty average to awful most weeks with a fan base that's not ready for that. And I'm like, look, guys, I'm not taking the snaps. Don't yell at me. I mean, obviously you cover the team. You are impactful in the team's progress and performance on the field and how those pro players are developing. So you need to just get in there and, and really lay into the players and explain to them uh, what fans are obviously seeing by watching on television uh, that you should be relaying to coaches and, and, and get that advice. Uh, Ryan, you do a great job. Very happy to have you here today. Look, we can make jokes about it, but six and six is a disappointing season for Oklahoma. And it seemed pretty split coming into the year on expectations for OU. There was many people, myself included, who thought the talent remains there. We've seen it so many times from Oklahoma. It's hard to say like, they're just going to have an off year. Um, but then there were those who predicted Oklahoma would finish middle of the pack or, or back half in the big 12, just because of, how many changes they were dealing with. And I, that, you know, after a three and O start to the year or, you know, blasting Nebraska, Oh, you look pretty good. And then you go the rest of the season to finish three and six and conference play. Not, not ideal. So looking at year one, six and six is disappointing, but for a, take the Oklahoma out of it and look at a brand new head coach, first time head coach, new offensive coordinator, complete rebuild of the quarterback room, everything that OU went through in the off season to get to this year. Is six and six disappointing or should we have, is it a more fair expectation in year one for Brett Venables than, than you most fans want to give it? Yeah, I, I think it's still really disappointing because when you look at the roster, um, I mean, a lot of the arguments coming out of, and this is fans are arguing, but a lot of the arguments coming out of Norman was after Lincoln Riley had left. And then there was the initial portal carnage in uh, before spring football. There was a lot of shock at just how many guys stayed on the roster, just how little attrition there was compared to what everyone thought it was going to be. Because when Lincoln Riley left, uh, the initial, you know, after everyone was in shock, the initial questions we were always getting is, are there going to be 20 guys, 30 guys left? Or is just everyone going to enter the transfer portal? The roster goes all sorts of ways, all that stuff. So for that roster, while not a playoff caliber talent, it it's better than six and six. There are a lot of teams in this Big 12 conference, I still think, that would have 
taken OU's roster and said, yeah, we'll, we'll trade our roster with that roster, keep our coaching staff and roll. So I think that on the talent side, that's a disappointment. Yeah. Dylan Gabriel's not a Heisman trophy caliber quarterback to kind of cover up for the defensive issues, all that stuff. But when you look at how Oklahoma lost a ton of those games, if you want to, you know, take Texas out of it, I guess, because Dylan Gabriel didn't play, even though Oklahoma was unable to field a backup quarterback, they felt confident to throw a forward pass, which is a disappointment at Oklahoma, whether anyway, but I mean, you look through Kansas state, um, TCU's a bit different with Gabriel leaving the game, but Kansas state, Baylor, West Virginia, Texas tech, a lot of the hallmarks of what lost Oklahoma, those football games against Kansas state inability to keep a quarterback in the pocket, uh, unable to harness any momentum. They finally got it back to 14, 14 early in the first half. And they give up a 50 yard kickoff return. Um, that they just flip momentum. Again, those were staples of what happened against Baylor. What happened against West Virginia, what happened against Texas tech, a team that couldn't harness any momentum, any of that stuff. So this was not a team that got better at winning games throughout the year. It's not like, Oh, they made this mistake in bedlam where they can't manage the clock. They escaped with a win the next week. They're unable to manage the clock at the end of the first half in Lubbock, and they took a 17-point lead, and it, it evaporated to a one-point advantage at halftime. So I think there are a lot of questions about game management, a lot of questions about Jeff Levy, the offensive coordinator, things like that. So uh, those overarching questions make year one uh, a failure as opposed to what would be an okay building block. It doesn't mean that Brent Middles can't be a good head coach on down the line, but it's inspire a confident Oklahoma's going to turn this thing around in year two and suddenly be back where they've been the last decade, which is two decades, which is a, a contender for the Big 12 championship and trying to play for more. Look, I know Oklahoma is really preparing themselves for their entrance into the SEC more than they're specifically from a program standpoint worried about the Big 12. Right, right. For the next two years, as we believe that Oklahoma will still be in the Big 12 for two more seasons at this point. It, they're here, they're getting themselves ready for that exit. But with the volatility of the Big 12, I mean, we saw the two teams who made the conference championship game last year won a combined 13 games in the regular season this year. Um, with TCU and Kansas State, if you're thinking that they're just going to keep rolling next year based off of history, maybe don't expect that. This conference is very volatile. So it does feel like you could have a situation for Oklahoma in year two where you see not only improvement, but a, a massive jump in the standings because of how volatile the conference is. I mean, look, we saw uh, Dave Aranda go from terrible head coach in year one to winning the Big 12 in year two, and now they're back to like six wins this year. So for Venables in year one, if you were to offer him some advice heading into year two of these are the things I think you would want to look at doing both from a coaching standpoint or from a, a staff management standpoint, uh, what would those pieces of advice be to him to help Oklahoma take a big step forward in his second year as, as the head of that program? Yeah. Starting with the staff. So a, a lot of the, the first thing people are yelling about is, staff changes and things like that. You look on the offensive side of the football, they've got an interim wide receiver coach in LaDainian, Washington. Um, that'll probably get filled as Kale Gundy left that spot um, basically the first week of, of fall camp. And then over on the other side, the big question coming into this offseason is going to be, what does Brent Venables do with the defensive coordinator spot? So Ted Roof was brought over from Clemson. He was an analyst at Clemson. Ted Roof has been a college football journeyman. Um, all throughout the Southeast, Penn State stops everywhere, feels like never in more than one spot for three or four years at the most. 
And he was a guy that was kind of brought in to be the linebackers coach and run Brent Venables defense. But we know Brent Venables has said that he was the guy leading the defensive meetings, things like that. I, I would say Brent Venables needs to make a decision, either be the acting defensive coordinator by name, call plays, all the stuff, because Brent Venables over 30 years in college football has shown he's one of the best defensive coordinators in the sport. Or the flip side is go and hire a young up and coming defensive coordinator who will actually, you will let him run the defense. Now you can hand him your playbook, all that stuff, but let that person give them all the power to actually run the defense and maybe disagree with you in some of those meetings and have those conversations behind closed doors. And that would leave Brent Venables to take a step back and actually manage the game because uh, Brent Venables in fall camp talked about that he's going to be someone that in his being, if he sees stuff wrong defensively, he's going to want to grab a whiteboard, run over and show them you're here. You need to be here, stuff like that. And at times we've seen that this season. And I think the other side of the football needs a little bit of management. Jeff Lebby, he wants to be the high octane, all tempo, all the time. And what the result of that was, was this Oklahoma offense either scored a touchdown or punted in two minutes, basically every single possession. That was what it did. And so for a defense, that's not great with not a ton of depth. They were out on the field a ton. There just didn't seem to be a ton of great game flow, game management, things like that. And if Brent Venables has an actual defensive coordinator who he trusts to make those adjustments, all that stuff, that would leave him more time to be focused on the offense and being able to get on the mic and tell Jeff Levy, Hey, don't go up tempo until we get, a couple of first downs here on this drive because the defense has to breathe things like that. So that would be my biggest thing. And, and then secondly, Brent Venables is going to have his um, philosophy on the transfer portal and, and things like that. Um, he came in and initially very much like Dabo Sweeney at Clemson was, this is not a program that wants to live and die in the portal. That's fine. I get that. But at, at some point you need to have some more impact transfers this year. Oklahoma brought in TD roof, Ted roof's son to play linebacker. He sustained a season ending injury in fall camp and the Sooners had three linebackers. They trusted to play all year long. Like that that's an error. You needed to bring in another linebacker, maybe two, just so that you would have some sort of depth. They brought in depth in the secondary that worked out. Well, a guy like CJ Colden at corner came on strong in the back half of the season. Um, they're going to need that kind of stuff because otherwise you're going to be saddled with a ton, a ton, a ton of underclassmen, which is great to get those guys experience. But you also need to keep some sort of momentum in the record department, because I doubt every year is going to be like this one where Oklahoma posts a six and six record and it's going to be pushing to be a, a top five, top six recruiting class. Yeah. And look, the transfer portal is open. We're seeing the names of players who are entering it. Like it's just part of college football. Like, I think we're finally stopping seeing fans like, oh, what are they doing? All these guys are transferring. Like, it doesn't necessarily an, an indication of a failure in the coaching staff or a failure in NIL. Sometimes it is. And sometimes it's just guys want different opportunities and different options, and they don't love the, the coaching staff they're with. And that's just a personal decision. And so completely ignoring it, I don't I don't think is, is the way to run a program, unless you are able to prove, as Dabo typically does, that you can produce top five recruiting classes year in and year out, despite that. And that's cool. That's fine. He could do that. Maybe OU can with Venables. Maybe maybe they would be able to. But with the amount of talent, and you see the name, especially quarterback, entering the portal, to completely ignore it, to me, is a is is trying to operate with one hand tied behind your back. And I, I don't think as a first-time head coach, you should be limiting yourself 
and making the job harder. If you want to eventually reach a point where you don't have to take as many transfer portal ads as, and that's fine. But I think you have to almost get everything established to the point where you don't have to. And I feel like right now for OU, with so many guys that leave, the idea of we're going to develop these guys that are going to stay, you can rely on that all day and night until when you don't expect leaves, leaves. And now you're back to having to develop that young guy again because the guy you thought would be around isn't. So I, I am very I'm pro, I'm pro player movement. I'm pro player getting the bag. And if that's the way things are going to be, then use that to your advantage as well. So I, I would, I mean, look, there's plenty of talent. There's no argument that I'm sure there's plenty of kids who would love the opportunity to not only get paid by an OU collective, but also come and play at the university of Oklahoma. Um, this year and for the next few years. So as far as roster goes, you talked about linebacker. That's obviously an area of need. We're going to see um, with the OES has entered the portal as well. Um, I know that uh, we've seen at least one offensive lineman in the portal, but he's not somebody who had made a, a huge impact on the field. Where are the areas of need to you for OU this off season? And do you see that as something that has to be dealt with in the transfer portal? Or do you see enough, already on the roster or coming into the recruiting class that you feel comfortable that 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 position can be solved with what they're already doing. Yeah. I think that the two spots they're going to need portal uh, additions are going to be at defensive back and at wide receiver. When you look at what they played this year, a guy like Justin Broyles at safety, he doesn't have eligibility left after COVID and all that. Same with Trey Morrison, who is a transfer coming in. Um, So that's two safeties that you're going to lose right there. You had a, a guy in Robert Spears Jennings, who's a true freshman that came in and played a very, very bit part role. But of the safety rotation this year, you've got Billy Bowman, who's going to be nailed on there, Key Lawrence, and then Robert Spears Jennings and uh, Damon Harmon, who uh, had a really scary injury at TCU, but was able to make it back. That's four guys for a defense that likes to go to a three safety look at times. So the matches doesn't really work out there. Probably going to need somebody else to come along unless you flip a Peyton Bowen and he's a he's talented enough and, and ready to get going immediately. So I think that's a portal spot. You look at corner as well. Um, we mentioned CJ Colden earlier. He's another guy that unless he gets a surprise medical red shirt from one of his years at Wyoming, he's expected to move along as well due to eligibility. So that's another corner spot that Oklahoma had guys on campus and a Jaden Davis, who's been an experienced starter, but he totally fell out of the rotation they had a Kanai Walker, a, a sophomore that transferred in from Louisville, who got a little bit of run in the beginning of the year and then totally fell out of the rotation. And otherwise, since Colden came on, it's been Colden and Woody Washington, and that's about it. So you've got Gentry Williams, a, an Oklahoma preps kid who will be a sophomore next year, but I'm not sure he's ready to take that spot on totally. So looking at maybe a corner and a safety, flip over to wide receivers too. Theo East hit the portal. Drake Stoops is going to be moving on with eligibility stuff. There's going to be a huge question surrounding Marvin Mims. Of does he go to the NFL, come back? What does that look like? So certainly if you lose Mims, you're looking at Jalil Farouk and not a ton of other proven guys behind him. It's going to be a bunch of underclassmen. So you're going to need a name or two to come in and just be a, a veteran in that group. And then from there, it just gets kind of interesting. Um, linebacker, they had... Um, three guys this year, Jaron Canick, Kobe McKenzie, and Kip Lewis. Canick got the most run, but all three of those guys were definitely, you got the the vibe that if they could have redshirted all three of them, they would have loved to. How quickly can those guys come on in the linebacking room? Because you're going to lose to Sean White, Danny Stutzman will be back, and then it's the decision that David Aguebu makes. So that's another one that you're looking at. Aguebu decides to take the NFL waters because he's very athletic or, or portal or anything like that. Then I think you're 
immediately looking for another linebacker again. And then um, defensive line talent, Alex Grinch, what he wanted was intentionally undersized guys, right? For the speed D, all that stuff. Britt Venables does not want that whatsoever. Neither does Todd Bates, the defensive line coach. So I also think you already saw them go out and get Jacob Lacey from Notre Dame, who wasn't really an impact player at Notre Dame, but his height weight is much more akin to what Brent Venables wants up front, adding a little more beef up front. So I think that's another area too, that um, if, if they can find just another body that's ready to rock and roll, they'll take it because especially with the defense, uh, they were very hesitant to throw out the freshmen this year. I think that they were content to say it's a big playbook. It's a complicated defense and to get into the strength program for a year, unless you're just absolutely an all world guy flashing left, right, and center. They, they really relied on the guys that had been there um, despite the fact that they hadn't played in Brent Venable's system. So I think that, a few, you know, graduate t- transfer type guys in the portal, that kind of profile of a, a, a year or two band-aid could definitely be looked at at all those positions. How big do you think it's going to be just being in year two of this program for the players? Because obviously big changes, you said massive shift on the defensive side. They wanted to go through a big culture change in, in how, how they play, the style of play they want to have, being more tough and physical as opposed to small and speedy. Like how how big do you think, just seriously, going into year two, having these players in the system, playing under Brent Venables, playing for these coaches, having a full year and then another offseason to prepare themselves for year two, like how how big is that alone? How much do you think that will, will help Oklahoma improve aside from everything else? Yeah, I, I think that that'll be something that definitely helps. Um, you look at what Oklahoma's defense did the back end of the season. So uh, when the sky was falling after they lost their three straight games to, to Kansas state, TCU and Texas at, at that point in the year, I'm not sure anyone had circled those as maybe the three best offenses in the big 12. Right. So, so maybe there was a little bit of an overreaction. Like it wasn't good, but to say, Oh my gosh, this is never going to get fixed when they, they played a West Virginia in bad conditions. That's not just a, a world beater offense. They didn't win, but it wasn't really the defense's fault. Oklahoma State that was just decimated with injuries. That was an offense that didn't really move the ball in Oklahoma. And in the past, it didn't matter. Good offense, bad offense, like teams were going to score in Norman. So I think that you saw a little bit of growth there toward the back end of the season, not enough to to flip results. And so if you kind of extrapolate that forward to what it can be after another offseason, especially defensively, I, I think that'll help just because we did see a lot of busts and things early in the season. And later in the season, it was missed tackling because those guys had been on the field for 38 minutes of a 60 minute football game, less coverage bust stuff. So that's something to work with the offense. It it's honestly going to be really hard to kind of gauge what that looks like as far as progress going, because you're losing both of your tackles to the NFL in Anton Harrison, Wanya Morris, you're losing Eric Gray, who posted a top 10 rushing season in Oklahoma history, which is, you know, nothing to slouch at. You're losing Braden Willis at tight end. You're like, it's going to look so different personnel wise that I think it may be difficult to determine. Does this offense feel better in year two, just because of all of the the guys they're going to have to replace, especially with the defensive lines that become in this league, right? Like it's not a, if you've got two weak offensive tackles or two inexperienced offensive tackles, then this is not a league you want to break those guys in. So it'll be interesting to see what that development looks like. But um, I think more than anything, what Oklahoma fans are going to be hoping to see out of the offense is a little bit more consistency from Dylan Gabriel as a guy that's maybe settled in a little bit more as the Oklahoma quarterback. And also just, 
the ability to show a couple of different gears as opposed to just two minute touchdown, 90 second, three and out. Cause that, that was the thing that was most infuriating. I think for Oklahoma fans down the, the home stretch is that the offense got more and more boomer busted and it became quite literally no first down or touchdown. And that was not sustainable for any kind of complimentary football. Yeah. Obviously they're, Oh, you'll be headed to a bowl game. They're going to Orlando for the cheese It bowl to face off against Florida state. Very much a, a name game. Obviously six and six season. They're going to a bowl. Whoopee. Um, do you see this bowl game being beneficial to Oklahoma or is it just a situation of like, cool, we got here, we're going to go play Florida state and then go a bowl game that doesn't matter. And then we'll start worrying about next year. Yeah, I, I think the bowls, not the game, I, the game I, is a bad matchup for Oklahoma. I, I don't think it's going to go well. Um, when you look at the guys for Florida state that have said that they're staying and want to play in the bowl game, especially burst they're on the edge. Uh, good luck to a true freshman in uh, Jacob Sexton at tackle uh, dots and prayers. But having those 15 practices, I think that's going to be massive because um, you, you saw during the bye week, there was a, a moment where Oklahoma was kind of wrestling with the veterans a little bit. And that's where a lot of the young guys really seemed to kind of come on. And And after the bye week, you saw there were a lot more freshmen that it's not like they were playing 50 snaps a game, but they were at least getting in there for a drive, things like that. And you saw that this was a team that trusted those guys a, a lot more to contribute. And so for a team that's going to be really young and going to need a lot of new guys to step up into the positions uh, to, to contribute next year, those bowl practices are going to be huge. It, just to keep those going, especially young linebackers, Canick, McKenzie Lewis, like we mentioned, those guys, 15 practices to run with the ones a ton. Yeah. Brent Venables has been very excited about it. You can tell Ted Roof and Jeff Levy were, were very stressed to get to that point. Cause I think everyone knows need it. They need after uh, just how inconsistent the play was this season. And uh, I think that's going to be the biggest regret for the Oklahoma coaching staff is that there were very, very fleeting moments, but there were tiny moments where things looked awesome for, you know, stretches of, of five, 10 minutes over the course of a game. And they couldn't find ways to sustain that whatsoever. Once they started playing living, breathing teams in big 12 play. So uh, getting those 15 extra practices to try and build that consistency. I, I think that's what the huge benefits going to be. And, and I do think that'll be a, a springboard for those guys into spring and uh, summer workouts. Never underestimate the benefit of bowl practice, folks. Never, ever. It's, it's the most important part, honestly. Like the bowl is fun. It's great. I like bowls more than most people do, but never underestimate the benefit of bowl practice. Ryan, you have been awesome, man. I really appreciate your time. Do me a favor, plug it all. Where are all the places that people can check out the work you do covering the Oklahoma Sooners? Yeah, for sure. Allsooners.com is where we're at. We do all the sports, not just football season. So we're transitioning into basketball and then my bread and butter really is when softball season gets kicked up like we mentioned so uh they track to be pretty decent again in norman so hopefully that'll be a uh, a group that makes it easy to cover and then if you're in the uh, oklahoma city area or whatever uh three to six p.m every day on the franchise and if you're not if you just love oklahoma oklahoma state and the thunder we got an app we got twitch all that stuff so at underscore ryan chapman on twitter where all that stuff gets fired out there easy spot to uh get the catch-all for for everything that we do ryan always a pleasure having you on the show man uh look forward to having you on again and uh in uh, enjoy covering the this bowl game you going to orlando oh yeah we uh we we sifted through all the all the flights and all that stuff as you can imagine 
flying into Orlando on December 26th is going to be just a joy. It's going to be a dream. <laughs> Everyone's going to be stoked for that, as well as hauling uh, video cameras through Disney World to film all of the like player bowl trip interactions. I'm sure that that's going to go swimmingly as well, because no one else is going to be there for the holidays at Disney. Yeah. No. No, the airports will be very empty. Very low travel day, the 26th. Exactly. So again, Ryan, have fun, man. And uh, hope to talk to you again soon. For sure. We'll see you guys. Hey, this is Jamie Steyer Johnson, host of the Cyclone Family Podcast. I host a show with my brother, Eric Steyer, and the two of us were raised in the ISU Athletic Department as my mom has coached women's basketball for over 20 years. Our involvement didn't stop there, and I've been a radio analyst for Cyclone Women's Basketball since 2019, and Eric spent his 2018 to 2022 years as a walk-on on the men's side. We get together each week to talk about what's happening in the world of Cyclone sports, whether that be current seasons, former players, or whatever else we find to be of interest. We'd love to have you join us. The Cyclone Family Podcast. When you listen, your family. Do you think Olive Garden can sue me for that? Look, a seven-win season and a bowl appearance isn't necessarily a a bad year. In fact, of the four incoming schools, BYU had a worst season. But based off of preseason expectation, Houston, to me, was the bigger disappointment, in part because Houston was picked preseason number one in the AAC poll. They were ranked in the preseason, and the schedule, so we thought, heading into the year— uh, set up for Houston to have an excellent shot at potentially getting a New Year's Six Bowl. Instead, seven and five, uh, some very disappointing losses. And now Houston has to figure some things out before they arrive in the Big 12 with Cincinnati, BYU, and UCF uh, coming this July. So joining me today to kind of break down what went wrong and, and really what changes need to be made are the hosts of the Scott and Holman podcast. That is, of course, our Houston Cougar podcast here at the 1012 Network. Dustin and Sam, guys, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. I'm going to be talking to you, Philip. Yeah, thanks for having us, Phil. Uh, people probably recognize Sam's voice. Uh, Sam's been on the show many a times. This is Dustin's somehow first appearance here on the 1012 podcast. I'm not. I'm not sure how that happened. Uh, I'm just a busy guy. I guess it's hard to. Uh, it's hard. It's hard to track me. Very down. in demand. Oh yeah. Well, very, very around town. I don't, I don't know. I've got no answer for that. Well, in that case, we are we are honored and privileged to uh, to be <laughs> able to for you to, to slice a little little piece of time out for us today. Uh, look, I don't I don't think I am wrong in saying that this season obviously was a disappointment. Uh, Dana Holgerson said it himself during the press conference for the uh, the Independence Bowl. He you know said we did not meet expectations. I am I am very well aware of that. I am disappointed in what the final record is. Um, that is a, a season that included, you know, losses in the non-conference to Texas Tech and Kansas. Obviously, both those teams better than expected. Uh, uh, a loss to Tulane, who was far better than anyone thought they would be. Uh, giving up the most points in regulation in, like, FBS history to SMU. And then closing out the season with a very disappointing loss to Tulsa. So definitely not close to, I think, what many people expected, including Houston and Houston fans. How do you, aside from it just being a disappointment, I mean, like, how big of a disappointment, or or how do we really grade review this season from from Houston side of it? Yeah, I think kind of my 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 big picture thought that I keep coming back to in terms of the football season is just looking back to thinking about to the team we had last year, and I feel like twenty twenty one Houston would have had a really good shot of winning the twenty twenty two AAC because there was no twenty twenty one Cincinnati 
standing in their way. And we, I think, all felt kind of coming into the year that Houston had the potential to be better than, than last season. You had Clayton Toon and Tank Dell and a lot of guys coming back offensively. Uh, you know, you lost some guys uh, to the draft uh, from the uh, the defensive side, but had a lot of in numbers, a lot of starters coming back and a lot of depth there. And some guys you felt like were going to be some difference makers and and give you a good defense. And instead, uh, you know, and it just it wasn't uh, is obviously a team that had clearly taken a step back from last year as opposed to a team that had taken a step forward. So, you know, when that happens and when you have a roster that's got a lot of upperclassmen that you kind of felt like it was a season more that you were kind of building towards, I think then that's when you have to to ask some big questions. And certainly I think there's there's some injuries is, is part of the answer, but it certainly is not uh, the entire answer in explaining how a, a top 20 defense becomes a bottom 20 defense in the span of, uh, of one year to the next. So I think that is where Houston's going to have to ask a lot of questions going forward you know personnel wise in terms of how they're uh, they're constructing the team going into next year and you know I, I'd be surprised if uh, they move on from Doug Belk uh, just based on one bad season but I think certainly looking at the uh, you have to you have to ask a lot of questions defensively and figure out you know kind of what went wrong and what's going to uh, to make this better as you go to a much better conference next year and have much stiffer tests ahead of your your Cougar defense yeah I mean obviously Houston joining the Big 12 and and look at whatever AAC members want to think um, it is a better conference than the AAC and so it is going to be night in and night out wake in wake out a far more difficult test obviously yeah you're right like you're not moving off from Doug Bell he was a it was a huge thing for Houston to be able to keep him obviously there were a lot of rumors about where he might have ended up elsewhere last season but Houston was able to pay enough to, to keep him around he's not going anywhere but I'm Heading into next season, I mean, if if you guys had the opportunity to sit down with with Dana, and and evaluate this coaching staff, are there changes you think should be made or could be made in this off season in preparation for the for the big move? I think you have to look at defense defensive backs, especially because there were a lot of things that didn't go well in this defense this year. I think you, I think this team finished the regular season somewhere between one ten and one twenty in SP plus, which I think is a pretty good marker that you were a pretty bad defense so you don't get to be that bad without I think some failures at all key levels but I, I think the real stunning thing is we expected some kind of drop off this year in terms of the past events I don't think there are a lot of programs out there that could lose two NFL cornerbacks and not at least field a little bit but you had a number of guys who had played a fair amount of reps a season ago you thought okay well maybe those maybe those guys step in it but goes from being a top 25 top 30 pass defense to a top 65 top set probably have some drop off there and just it was catastrophic it was one of the worst season on season flips that i've seen and and that you had against tulsa another of many very bad games from your past defense four i think of your five guys that played most in the secondary walked on senior day so i think first off it's get as many really go hard in the portal for the secondary because quite frankly if the guys in this roster weren't good enough to play over the starting defensive backs, I think you really immediately evaluate one, whether Doug Belk should frankly stay coaching safeties. Can Doug Belk handle the task of being the defensive coordinator, being the guy that creates what you're doing scheme wise and also coaching that position group and maybe potentially look at your quarterbacks coach as much as I don't think David Rowe, your cornerbacks coach stopped learning or stopped knowing how to coach the position in a season. I also think the performance is so catastrophic. You have to, I think, kind of evaluate whether or not maybe a new voice uh, for that specific position group and maybe Doug Belk, I don't know, maybe taking less on in terms of what he does in terms of coaching the safeties because it was just, 
it was so catastrophically bad. A lot of things went bad on this defense, but I think the past defense was absolutely the worst part of it. I think, I think if I could have Dana's ear on anything, it would be that. You mentioned the portal. I mean, that is a big part of everything. Houston uh, on on day one uh, of the transfer portal saw six guys hop in to take off. I mean, it's not a big number. Uh, honestly, we've seen way more from from other current Big Twelve schools. Um, of the guys who have entered, do you have any concern with what you've seen from the transfer portal so far of, of the guys who have left or, or is this just par for the course? Yeah, no, it's, it's felt pretty par for the course so far. None of the guys that, uh, that left were someone that really were major contributors this year, guys that I probably didn't really envision being huge part, uh, you know, contributors next year, which is, you know, the majority of guys in the portals because they feel like they're not going to be contributors next year and they want to go find somewhere where, uh, where that would will be the case so you know you never want to say oh well it's very easy to go well that guy wasn't good but it, you know these guys these guys that didn't play very much you know f- uh you know frankly this year and and uh, and i don't know that what the path going forward was there um so it's nothing so far and then i mean that's something that honestly since dana holgerson's been here that's one of the things that's as much as i think the cougar fan base is having a hard time with dana right now and his his you know popularity rating with the fan base is not uh at an all-time high for sure but you know one thing i think you have to say about him is that since he's been here he's added guys through the portal you haven't lost, you know, Derek King would be like the obvious counterexample, but you haven't lost a ton of guys to the portal. And after the kind of season we've had where not only did the team not live up to expectations, but there were some kind of, you know, weird moments with, you know, some fighting on the sideline early in the season. You know, had a, a guy slapping a Tulsa player after the game for no reason, like right at the end of the final game. Just some, just some weird stuff. You know, Dana Holberson is giving a lot of quotes about how tired and fed up he was with everything this year. Um, it, it wasn't a year that felt great um, from a like just, chemistry and uh, and you know and then the, that's the big thing you can have a down year and then if you keep the the program everyone's still pulling in the right direction maybe you can rebound from that whereas you know if if, if you all of a sudden you're start you're losing a bunch of guys you know that's an issue and so and as much as we are gonna you know pretty down on houston and the, the disappointing year we had and what that kind of foretells for heading to a much tougher conference next year there's a lot of a lot of talented players in this roster that you can kind of build around uh, through the portal. And if all of a sudden you see a bunch of those guys departing, that's when, you know, it gets harder and harder. That, that, at that point, that's when the administration has to say, you know, how we can't afford to buy Dana out, but can we afford to not buy Dana out? And I think what allows them, what makes that a no brainer right now is I mean, a, how much money is left on his contract and B the fact that he doesn't seem to be losing the roster through the portal. There's still, you know, I think an envisionable path forward where, you know, Houston adds some guys at, uh, at some key positions and still gives an honest account of themselves in the Big 12 next year. So let's talk about those positions. Exactly where do you think Houston needs to focus position-wise in the transfer portal as far as bringing new guys in? Every single defensive position group. Maybe, well, defensive. <laughs> I think defensive line, they've done pretty well in defensive line, and there's a couple of guys who I think we expect to play this year who redshirted and might have been, feels like it might have been purposeful. To, because those guys were guys we expected to play, but probably would have slotted behind the existing guys. There was a pretty veteran group. This, for all the problems of the defense, I mean, I don't believe pro football focus grades are gospel, but a number of U of H edge rushers were really highly rated by PFF this year. So that position group, maybe not, but I think this year you saw like the linebacker group was a real struggle, even with Donovan Mutant, a four-year starter, somebody we thought was one of the better defensive players this pro recently. That, really struggled i've kind of talked about the secondary already it was really bad the tackling was bad the coverage was bad other than javarius owens who seems to be a guy playing pretty well again pff again but uh rated pretty highly by pff seems to kind of be on an island every uh defensive back that saw even uh, i would say glancing action this year really really did not do well i wouldn't have a problem with 
potentially bring in three or four defensive backs that you think could be impact guys. I really don't think anybody from that group, even though there will be a couple of guys who are coming back from this year's group, I don't think any of the guys coming back should feel like they have position locked down because quite frankly, this defense was atrocious against the pass and it's only a get much, much, much more difficult next year's schedule. So that would be my my first group to start out with. Uh, and maybe also receiver, not that the talent coming back receiver is bad, but I just feel like that's one of the position groups where you can never have enough impact guys and you are losing someone pretty key in Tank Dell along with a key rotation guy in Kashawn Carter as well. So I would I would say secondary and receiver in that order, even though I don't think uh, for the exact same reasons for either group. I do have to jump in and throw quarterback in that list uh, as well. That's that one. Oh, yeah. got to be way, way out there as well. Houston has, as of now, you know, one returning scholarship quarterback. It was definitely purposely teeing you up. Lucas Cole, I appreciate sure. you. It's giving me something to still talk about as you hit all the other good answers. Um, but no, no, it's, you know, Lucas Cole being the one scholarship quarterback. And I'm not saying that there's a 0% chance or that I will, you know, that it'll happen or that I'll, you know, riot if Lucas Cole is a starter. You know, I think the staff brought him in because I think he can be a really good quarterback here. And and uh, from the, you know, few plays that we saw towards the end of the year, I, I didn't see anything that made me think that, uh, that he can't play uh, college football in the near future but I mean you lot you know you're losing Clayton Goon obviously even your primary you know walk on you know Holman Edwards the, the wonderfully named Holman Edwards uh, already it was one of the guys that hit the portal and went you know ended up at Southern Miss um, so you know it's, it's you, you need depth there Dan Holgerson has already talked about adding one if not two quarterbacks uh, from the portal so you know I, I think you got to at least you know ideally you love to bring in there because there seems like there's a lot of named quarterbacks in the portal uh um, ideally, you'd love to bring in one of those guys that you kind of know is probably going to come in and uh, and win the job. But at the very least, I think you got to bring in somebody to compete with Lucas Coley for the job. I mean, we have seen the names that have entered the transfer portal so far, and we have seen some big time quarterbacks do so. And, and so, you know, if you're Houston, uh, you're, you're entering into the Big 12, you offer a new Power 5 opportunity. It it does feel like, and look, it's going to be hard-pressed if everyone's out for a quarterback. There's lots of teams who are going to be in the transfer portal trying to grab one. But with the names that are out there, it it does feel like it is an opportunity for Houston to say, we've, we've got a starting spot. If we could land somebody marquee, that would be very helpful for Houston as they enter into the Big 12, as we mentioned, which is going to be a, a much different test than what they faced the last few years in the AAC. Yeah, and I think that's a good first test of the new like Big Twelve draw. You know, that's that's something that I think is really exciting about Houston is the idea of being able to go in the portal every year and not only go after the just myriad, myriad, you know, Houston area guys that went somewhere else for college and might be interested in coming back uh, at a later point. Um, but to, to be able to combine that, the pool of guys that you kind of have to go after with the uh, the Big 12 poll was, I think, one of the the really exciting things about joining the Big 12 conference. Just imagine feeling like there's there's you, you're kind of have a, you know another whole other group of, of guys that you can now go after that wouldn't have considered you in the AAC, but now will certainly consider you in the Big 12. So that that is, I think, the first big test of how much is that Houston Big 12 draw going to be there? Can you na- can you land one of the you know decent number of uh, named quarterbacks in the portal? How do you guys feel today about Houston heading into the Big 12 compared to how you did at say the end of of last season? Do you have a different level of confidence in how Houston will perform straight away? And then what kind of timeline do you kind of view for Houston as far as when you should start seeing Houston competing at the top level in the Big 12? Because I I think that the the teams coming in all have some questions. Cincinnati obviously going through a coaching change. Uh, We've seen UCF and plays up and down a competition. BYU having a, a very down year. And then Houston being disappointing. We've seen the teams who come from 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 G five 
Houston or sorry, uh, West Virginia and TCU did it in the past. It took them a few years to get rolling. I mean, what what are your expectations for Houston now today after the season in year one of the Big Twelve? Well, I gotta say, I'm not more optimistic uh, now <laughs> than I was uh, about about eleven, twelve months ago. Which I, I don't think it's any any surprise to anyone. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think next year is going to tell us a lot with that. I think a realistic expectation right now for Cougar fans is to be bowl el- If you're anything you get beyond bowl eligibility next year is gravy. If we're being quite honest, I'm not. And this isn't me saying, oh, I think the most likely outcome here is Houston getting to six wins here. I think that's going to be tough. You have the nine game big 12 schedule. You have, I, I would say probably two, you know, two of the three non-conference pretty winnable, but uh, not taking UTSA in the opener at home uh, lightly, certainly not with Frank Harris coming back this year. So I, in terms of a long-term timetable, next year is going to tell us a lot about that. If, if somehow this team coming off this disappointing seven to five season, you know, land someone good in the portal. It seems like in 2021, I think it was a good example of, it seems like at times, the guys in this program thrive more on being overlooked and playing with some kind of chip. And I, I think that's something you saw a lot with the 2021 team is that they saw a lot of the, you know, the first two years of the staff are bad. This team is going to be fifth or sixth in the AAC. And they said, you know, okay. And got a nice schedule to do it and ended up going to the conference championship game. And then the off season of hype just didn't clearly suit this team very well. So, but I think most generally, I, I would say three to five years, I, I think before, we can really start thinking about that. And frankly, three to five years might be optimistic if we go into 2023 and it ends up being more like a three, four win season, three to five years might look quite optimistic at that point. But I think, I think really that's a good blanket answer for how long you should expect it. If you're not a program entering in some serious disadvantages, if you're not, for example, Missouri entering the sec or something like that, like I, I wouldn't say Houston's going to come in here and immediately be on the level of all the teams in the big 12. I think, think last year through cold water any anything or this past season through cold water or anything like that but i would also say houston's not wildly disadvantaged in terms of recruiting footprint resources history etc cetera, etc cetera. so i would say say three to five years but obviously very heavily contingent on what we see in this actual first season of a uh, big 12 play because quite frankly this team has a lot of questions and for, and would be I think very shocked if they're not picked in the bottom two or three of the next uh, preseason bowl here. This coming August. Yeah. We're all eagerly anticipating and waiting for the big 12 schedule to be released any day. Now uh, Houston set themselves very nice up uh, with the, the non-con get UTSA, obviously Frank Harris back, but that'll be at home at rice and Sam Houston. So uh, playing a bunch of nice Texas teams to start the season, not going to have to leave the state of Texas, at least uh, for the first three weeks of the season that I do think that will make uh, play a big part in Houston in year one. Y- you guys mentioned something and I, and I wanted to kind of, backtrack on it about some of the comments that Dana has made about this season and I know on our show earlier in the year we kind of criticized some of the stuff that he was saying where he seemed to kind of throw the players under the bus based off their performances I think it was after the Tulane game and he he kind of came back out after a while and took some responsibility for for how things were going so far but I mean it did seem like Dana was a bit frustrated with how this year went and I'm not going to say that um they couldn't find a solution to the problem, but it did seem like, you know, just they got some things rolling, but then you have the disappointing thing into the year. Like they didn't seem to be able to figure out whatever the problem was. I mean, the big 12 is familiar with Dana. 
He was at West Virginia for, for quite some time. He's coming back into the conference. He was the offensive coordinator at, at, at Oklahoma State for a year. He was the OC at West Virginia for all. So we, we're very familiar with Dana Holgerson. I mean, how confident are you guys in Dana leading Houston into a conference where we saw him have very up and down levels of success previously? Uh, I mean, I would not say I'm brimming with confidence. Um, you know, I, I, I was watching the uh, um, the Louisville situation where Cincinnati, one of the teams that's also joining the Big 12 with us, uh, hired um, the guy whose name is escaping me away from Louisville. Thank you, Scott Satterfield. And the way their fans are just like, oh, okay, cool. We get to, we get to go hire someone else? No, sweet. And there's not a lot. Just, do I think there's no chance that Dana Holgerson, you know, has Houston reasonably successful in the next couple of years in the big job? No, I think I think it's possible. I think he probably is more capable of doing that than a lot of the fan base uh, maybe gives him credit for. But, man, if some, if some you know, school came in and Scott Satterfielded us uh, tomorrow, I, I wouldn't be stressed about it. So I guess that's, that's maybe a good commentary on um, – kind of my level of confidence so just yeah i, I think he, he's yet to show that he can uh can can win here at houston against good teams doing what he's doing and he's he's gonna have to go play a, a lot of good teams and and i'm just, and it's not only it wasn't just you know his comments that it wasn't just him saying you know i i don't take responsibility for the penalties or whatever the quote was but then just the multiple times he talked about how tired he was and how frustrated he was and how just tired he is of doing you know of, of, of doing the same things over and over again and having to to do all the things that go along with college coaching and he just he's got a <laughs> lot of money left on his contract he's got a lot of money and years left on his contract i believe it is i was pulling it up. i think it is uh was it 23 24 25 all guaranteed in full and then 60 percent if they fire him for 26 and 27 so he's got a lot of years left and a lot of that money is coming to him but it is going to be real interesting you know what if worse comes to worse what if houston goes three and nine next year and they go four and eight and in, in in 2024 you know and and then the you know i mean, I, guess I think at that point the administration would have no choice but to to you know take their big 12 money together and get them fired but even even just in year one i'm curious if, if things kind of go south is dana holgerson still going to want to just to stick around and do the college football thing at some point is he just going to say you know what I, i'm just this isn't fun anymore i've got enough money to go do things that are fun dana holgerson honestly seems like a coach if anyone that would make that kind of decision so i think it's going to be a story to watch is just does, does dana holgerson want to keep doing this if he gets to the big 12 and finds that it's really hard i would say like a three and a half or a four on the zero to ten scale and i think actually most of that three and a half or four is because of his time at west virginia because I don't think he was great there, but I also think the last four years of Neil Brown have shown us that, oh, like he wasn't probably as bad as like the worst of what uh, West Virginia fans have said. So that's actually where most of my existing confidence is coming from. Certainly not the last season and really three of the four years we've seen him here at Houston. So Houston playing in the Independence Bowl uh, against the Raging Cajuns of Louisiana. As I know. So here's the here's the question. There is I, I don't think you can overstate how valuable bowl practices for a team ever. I think it's one of the bowl game is nice. Um, I am a big fan of bowl games. I'm all for them. Rah, rah, sis, boom, bah. I understand people who don't care. If anyone ever walked up to me and said that they think there's too many bowl games, I would turn away around and walk away from them quickly. Um, but Hell like, yeah. I think we can all agree bowl practice is the best possible thing you could get. So for, for Houston, how valuable do you think that this bowl preparation is for them? And, and how how important is this bowl game? Is this something where you want to win this just to feel kind of positive and have a nice win at the end of the season? Or are you guys kind of like, let's get the practice and start prepping for next year? You know, if we had beaten Tulsa last week, if that game had gone like we expected to, 
I think it would actually, I would put some importance on this. I would say it would have been a chance to get to nine wins, chance to, I think, largely, even with that awful stain that was the SMU game on the schedule, still end the season playing a lot better than maybe you started. But, oh, man, that Tulsa game almost feels like it knocks you right back to square one. So it's not that I don't think it's important. I think it's cool. I would say actually a positive endorsement probably of Dana Holgerson is long-term culture here that Clayton Tune and Tank Dell both appear to be playing in this game, a uh, a pre-Christmas bowl against a 6-6 six and six ULL. I, I think that's some endorsement of how bought in those guys are, even even with, uh, I would hope, uh, pro careers ahead of them here in the next uh, five or six months. But I don't know because I think you are going to be playing a lot of older guys in their last game. I feel like it's more of a last hurrah for those guys, a last chance to not end the 2022 season on the worst note possible rather than this isn't going to be us seeing like, okay, was four quarters of Lucas Coley running the offense look like, and I'm not going to say like, Oh, I wish Clayton dude wouldn't play in this game because I want to see the guy get to 4,000 passing yards. I want to see somebody who I think bears very little responsibility for the season going South, get a chance to end his last game of his last collegiate career on a high note. But I don't know. I guess it would be, it's good because you do have some position groups like offensive line, which I think was one of the real strong pauses in the back half of the season, who are all guys projected to be back. You might see some of the younger guys um, in, you know, in the, in the secondary, in the linebacker group that have had been forced into action. And maybe you can end the season on a higher note for those guys. But I, I don't know. I think it's kind of unclear what value it has because this is a pretty veteran team. And at least as of, you know, Wednesday, December 7th, we haven't seen a lot of those guys uh, say that they're definitively not playing in this game yet. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with Sam. The The sole benefit of the actual game itself is, uh, is seeing Clayton Toon and Tank Dell, uh, you know, play catch one more time because as much as the last couple of seasons, or I guess not in the last season, two seasons ago, was a lot of fun. Because as much as this season wasn't a lot of wasn't a lot of fun, continuing to see Clayton Dell, uh, Clayton Toon, and Tank Dell, as I definitely know what their names are. <laughs> Seeing them get to play together every that that week was a lot. Every week was a lot of fun, and like it's it's you know say what you will about the defense being terrible, which it was. You know it wasn't not fun to tune in and watch those guys uh, just slang the ball around the yard because they're two incredibly talented players and uh, who, like you said, don't really deserve any of the the slander for how the year has has not lived up to expectations. So I will you know I'll tune in to for that reason and that reason alone. And other than that, yeah, bowl practice is great because like I said, you do have a lot of guys coming back next year uh, that are talented players, and for them to get, get as much practice as possible and and all that is is certainly the real benefit here. And uh, the game itself is going to just very much feel like the uh, the exhibition game that it is and it will take uh, nothing really either way out of it in terms of you know momentum going into next year i don't think eight and five really does look a whole lot better than seven and six like does it, it? it mm. i'm kind of with sam nine like nine and four to me feels like a no, big no. deal now okay, nine and four like, a, like eight and four seven and six eight and five seven and six. I don't know. I don't know. One They're game above 500, but unimpressive. One it's game just... above 500 to me is just like, I mean, you, you didn't have a losing season. That's usually the nice thing. Is like eight and five? I had a winning season. Okay. All right. You don't. That's not, that's not terrible. Based off expectations, no, that's disappointing. But it's, it's eight and five is better in hindsight, looking back. Uh, Dustin, Sam, I appreciate you guys' time. Dustin, especially you. Again, just, you're such a busy guy. You're in such high demand. You're all over the place. A jack of all trades to, for you uh, to, to cut off a slice of time for us tonight uh, is really beneficial. Uh, you guys, of course, are part of the network and do an incredible job. There's not another Houston podcast. That's just what I tell people. They're like, well, how come you picked them? It's like, because there's not another one. 
Because if there is, I don't care and I don't know because you're the only one worth listening to. But for those who are Houston fans or just Big 12 fans who are like, I guess we should start paying attention to Houston. And because Houston basketball is still ranked number one in the country, folks. Uh, this is this is probably the good time to start uh, right about uh, now if you haven't done so already. Now is the time to check it out. So do me a favor, uh, plug the show, everything else you guys can, and, and do do following Houston, hit it. Yeah, absolutely. Anywhere you get your podcast, search Scott and Holman podcast. We, of course, got the pun in there, P-A-W-D pod, because because Cougars have paws, you get it. Uh, so that's the Scott and Holman podcast. Anywhere you get your podcast, we do uh, just weekly Talking about every single Cougar sport, new development we're doing is uh, is throwing out some bonus uh, pods. So if you want to get the the real in depth scoop, you can join us for any dollar amount on Patreon and get the uh, the even in depth. We did a uh, or Sam, I, I should say, I can't I can't use the royal we. I wasn't a part of it. Sam and uh, and a good friend of ours uh, did a, a real deep dive on each game of the season thus far. Is uh, real good for our, our Patreon listeners there. So uh, continuing to pump out the Cougar content. And like we said, we've got a, a Cougar volleyball team that's in the Sweet 16 right now. We've got a Cougar men's basketball team, number one in the country. Uh, got a lot to be excited about uh, for the people in Scarlet and Albino, even if the football team was, uh, you know, a little on the uh, up and down this year. You know, when when football disappoints, it doesn't hurt when basketball is uh, a, a beautiful distraction. Absolutely great. I, I played basketball Absolutely. in high school, so if you could give me, if if you had offered me, you know, before, the year before Kellen Sampson got here, hey, a decade from now, your team's gonna be number one in the country, and your football team will be. I, mean, I don't care, my we can drop football. I don't. I mean, I don't want to know. We can't drop football. I'm kidding, but like, but to be number one in men's basketball is is everything I ever wanted, and uh, I'm I, I may be in the minority here because I live in Texas and I understand that, but uh, as long as we're number one in men's basketball, it'll take a lot to make me upset. Uh, big game against Virginia. Is that this week or next week? Virginia's, Virginia's next Saturday. Virginia's next, next Saturday, Saturday okay. away. We have Alabama Alabama at home this coming Saturday. First ever top That's right. 10 versus first top 10 versus top 10 matchup that Houston has hosted since Delmar Fieldhouse uh, in 1966. 1966 against, uh, New Mexico. Yep. So uh, first top 10 versus 10 game. Houston is hosted. Yeah. And I don't even know how many years is that? It's 56? That's a lot Before of years. Before we were all born. Uh, we've got a diehard Houston listener of the show who uh, who I'm, has reminded me that I forgot to mention the uh, Houston-Alabama game on Monday's episode, so we plug it here. Again, Scott and Holman podcast. Everybody go check it out. It is a fantastic way to learn all about the Houston Cougars uh, with two fans who are not annoying. Sorry, guys. Just, you know. We got to start now. You guys are coming in. Let's just start the start the fun on the rivalry. Dustin, Sam, again, appreciate your time. Talk to you guys again soon. Absolutely, for sure. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Phil. Brand new for the 2022 season. It's the RVK. We're coming at you two ways on two days. It's Monday and Thursday. Jeremy J and Fiend Phoenix and me. Brandon Phoenix, a.k.a. I also hate Pitt. We are the Raspy Voice Kids. We are the Raspy Voice Kids podcast. You get pop culture Monday at 7 a.m. You get the West Virginia University podcast Thursdays at 7 a.m. Either way, no matter what we say, you're going to have fun. So, like we like to tell you, get at your boys. Among the teams this year that had a disappointing season, one of them definitely being the West Virginia Mountaineers, though it did end a bit better then it looked like it might heading into those last couple weeks of the season. A lot of things are on the line in West Virginia in 2023, including probably Neil Brown's job. So to talk about what the next steps are for the Mountaineers, very excited to have Keenan Cummings of WV Sports Now, a part of the Rival site, joining us today. Keenan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Let's just start with the hard part. I, 
I don't think there's any West Virginia fan, no matter how the season ended, you know, getting wins over Oklahoma and Oklahoma State, you know, towards the end, back half of the season. Despite all that, I don't think there's any West Virginia fans who's going to look at this season and go, it was successful remotely. Um, a lot of expectations in year in year four for him, for Neil Brown. I mean, how do you how do you gauge this year? Especially even you know, again, you beat Virginia Tech. You had a chance to beat Pitt, but that doesn't count. You you beat Oklahoma and Oklahoma State, both teams for the first time in the same year. It, there's there's some positive takeaways. You beat Baylor, so both teams who were in the Big Twelve title game, but finish five and seven, miss out on a bowl game. Obviously, a lot of issues. Just what do you think is a fair evaluation of this season in West Virginia? You kind of hit the nail on the head there. I mean, you, you go into this season, you, you tell West Virginia fans, you're going to beat Virginia Tech by the widest margin you've ever beaten them in Lane Stadium. If you're going to beat Baylor. You're going to finally beat Oklahoma and Oklahoma State in the same season. And you're going to finish five and seven. I don't think anybody would have believed that. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of the way this season went. Um, there is no word to describe this year other than disappointment. Um, I don't think anybody realistically expected West Virginia, you know, to be one of the top teams in the league or, or be a, you know, rough front runner for the big 12 championship, but there's nobody, at least in terms of West Virginia fans, in terms of people around the program that expected another losing season. So there's a lot of frustration, um, you know, and fans have been patient here uh, to their credit. They've been very patient. This is the first year, you start. You started to see a little bit of cracks at the end of end of 2021, but this is the first year where you really could see the frustration mounting with the fan base. You know, this is three of four seasons that Neil Brown has been the head coach. They've had a losing record. Um, they've never been ranked in his entire tenure, 22 and 25 overall. Um, none of that is what anybody thought. You know, the way they finished that first season. You know, they finished five and seven in the first season but promising down the stretch this season, even, even beating Oklahoma and Oklahoma state, it almost felt like they were limping into the finish. Yeah. You know, there was a lot of speculation at the end of the year that Neil Brown was going to be done. He was going to be out at West Virginia based off the way this had gone and and, and his four years there. And, you know, after a while, it's hard to continue to hashtag trust the climb when four years in, you'd feel like you would have climbed a little bit higher as opposed to backwards, but he will remain the head coach of the Mountaineers in 2023. I assume that has a lot to do with a having a new athletic director in Ren Baker and wanting to make sure that he is, he's got his feet on the ground and has had time to properly evaluate the program and what the best next steps are B him coming, getting in a, in December, which means it would have been a, a later firing and let's say later hiring. And then, and nowadays, you know, firing a head coach in December seems awfully late as compared to teams firing coaches in October. And probably Neil Brown's buyout. I've seen that, if, as I understand it properly, he's basically owed every dollar on his contract over the next, what, three, four seasons. And so it's not like firing him early would have saved West Virginia any money. Whenever you fire him, he's going to get everything that he's owed up to a certain point. So that's a lot of money to pay. I know that schools have a lot of money. The West Virginia and the Big 12 are not the SEC and the Big 10. But... I, what else may have gone into, in your opinion, Neil Brown staying at West Virginia? Well, I think I think a lot of the things off the field, Neil Brown does well. He wins in it, – it's strange. It's it's really weird. He wins in practically every area except where it matters the most, on the field. You know, he's got West Virginia doing very well on the recruiting trail. 
he's connected with fans until really, obviously, you know, this past season has really started to, you know, frustrations are, are mounting, but embrace the West Virginia culture. You know, the administration really likes the guy. I think there's a lot of things working in his favor, but he's even said it, you know, when you, when you've asked him, it's a results-based industry. And when you're not getting those results, it causes frustration, but all the things that, I mean, you look at even this year, all this turmoil that West Virginia is undergoing, you know, all these rumors, everything that's been discussed. I mean, let's be honest, it's outside of rumors. I mean, Neil Brown's job was on the line at multiple times and West Virginia has the number 24 ranked recruiting class in the country. I mean, the guy has brought talent to West Virginia. It's a matter of developing it and getting it to get to a standard where you can win some football games. So I think there's still a lot of faith in Neil Brown, the person from the administration. Um, the fan base is kind of, you got you to prove it to me at this point. But as I mentioned earlier, he got a lot, a lot of patience. This is a fan base that I know West Virginia struggled a lot since joining the Big 12, but traditionally very prideful, really, really used to success. So the past you know, decade is, has been rough for this West Virginia fan base. And they're really, really desperate, really, really longing to get back to relevancy in college football. And we always say it pays to be uh, likable. It really does. Um, <laughs> obviously, Neil Brown made a big change heading into this past season in hiring an offensive coordinator in Graham Harrell and, and handing the offense over to him. Uh, obviously, Neil Brown had had his fingers all over the offense for the first three years of his time there. Do you see any major changes you believe that Neil Brown should or will make heading into this offseason, both from a coaching standpoint? Well, let's start with coaching standpoint. To, to try and keep his job past 2023? It's hard to say. I think you're, you're probably going to see some, some coaching turnover. It would surprise me if you don't make some moves. Um, obviously, people are upset with, with the play of the defense this past year, but I don't necessarily think that's fair, given how well Jordan Leslie has coached the defense over the last couple of years. Um, this year, he had a lot of turnover, a lot of new faces, a lot of injuries. You know, I, in the end, though, I mean, when fans are looking at it, that's just a quote, unquote, a lot of excuses, but in actuality, it's hard to win college football games when you're playing walk-ons and at cornerback and, and some other spots. So I think that's something that fans are going to be calling for. They're going to want to see turnover in some spots. Offensive line is a, is a spot that fans constantly are, are battling with, although I think that air, that unit took a major leap forward this past season. But, you know, if fans are always wanting something in terms of what the program Needs, I, I think they need to continue to, you know, Neil's got to continue to embrace that CEO role, uh, got to continue to hand the offense over. And you might, you, you're going to have to look at something because you finished five and seven, as I mentioned earlier, 22 and 25 over four seasons. You have to look at some different things if you want to have success. I've obviously this is the time of year as the transfer portal opens that every school's NIL collective start really cranking out and, and asking everybody, hey, you see our guys leaving. We want to continue to recruit players, start donating. It does feel like there has been more push from West Virginia in regards to, especially the Country Roads Trust, the W, uh, the West Virginia NIL. How how much has, oh, I'm trying to think of the right way to, to put this. Have you seen a change in how West Virginia is viewing utilizing NIL as far as recruiting and the transfer portal. I mean, that's something that obviously um, has been talked about more. That's something that the former athletic director, whose name completely just Shane Lyons, kind of talked about in some interviews recently. Have you seen any sort of shift here that you think can can have an impact for Neil heading into next year? 
I think they're definitely making a more concentrated effort. Uh, it's something that you've seen build over time, but you saw the first day Rim Baker was hired. Well, the second next day, the second day that he was officially hired, he was already doing a, a spot ad for the Country Roads Trust, you know, trying to get people to, you know, encouraging people to use that. And you are seeing start to embrace that. They understand it's a different game now. You know, it's not necessarily the game it was 10 years ago where, you know, you recruit some freshmen, you develop them over time and, and watch them, you know, over four years and how good they get. Now it's almost, it's, it's basketball type model in football. You build your rosters from year to year. You try to bring in as much talent as you can for one year, and then you hope to retain what you can retain to the next season. So, yes, I have seen a, a concentrated effort from West Virginia. I think you're going to see him probably be more active in the transfer portal than they've been under Neil Brown at any point. You know, it's always kind of something he said is it's additive. But I think you see, you know, with the spots they have remaining in this class, really a hardcore effort. You've seen 30, 35 offers uh, to transfer portal players go out over the last, you know, five, three, four days. Uh, and we got that whole list over at WVSports.com. So a whole bunch of activity. And I think you're going to continue to see that, you know, into January, February, you know, and all the way into the spring. Yeah, obviously there's two transfer portal windows now, uh, one that is currently active and goes until I believe January 15th um, or somewhere around there. And then another one, um, May 1st through 15th as well. So definitely something that's going to be very, very active talking about the transfer portal, talking about this roster that we know that JT Daniels has, or is reportedly going to enter the transfer portal again and, and leave West Virginia. Uh, West Virginia, I think has eight players in the portal thus far, if I remember my math correctly. Uh, where do you see West Virginia's biggest needs between players leaving due to lack of eligibility, heading to the NFL or transfer portal? Where do you see the biggest holes for this roster that where they are going to emphasize the transfer portal this offseason? Two biggest spots right off the top of my head is going to be wide receiver and defensive back. Um, you're going to see a heavy mix of wide receivers, maybe three to four transfer wide receivers if they can get them. Defensive back, similar. Um, they struggled there last year. Got some guys they felt good about coming into the year and just did not meet up meet up to par. They were not the players that they thought they would be. They struggled mightily there. I think you see a big push there. And it's not just going to stop at those two spots. You're going to see West Virginia try to get tight in, uh, linebackers, some defensive linemen, maybe an offensive lineman. I think that, you know, West Virginia's taken around seven, ten, comfortable number there over the past couple of years under Neil Brown. I think that number is definitely higher this year. I think you see him targeting and, and more active on, I guess, quote unquote, bigger name targets in the portal guys, uh, kind of the approach Bob Huggins took this past year, you know, he struck out the year before and this year, you know, went after some guys that everybody was in on and won some of those battles. I think you see the football program really kind of take that same blueprint and apply it to the, to this off season. Yeah, Keenan, let me ask you this. Let's let's do a little role playing for a second. If if you were sitting in the office with Neil Brown and Neil asked you, you know, what what do you think I should do this offseason? What are one or two key items I need to do, whether it's personnel related, whether it's player related, whether it's scheme related, just anything to to finally climb that ladder that he's been preaching about in 2023 and, and find real success at West Virginia? I think it starts with personnel. I mean, they've, they've got to hit wide receiver. Uh, wide receiver has been an issue for West Virginia. Even some of their standout guys, uh, Bryce Ford-Wheaton, Sam James, over the last couple of years, you know, they, they had a ceiling. 
Um, they've got to get more explosion at wide receiver, guys that can, you know, create big plays, not necessarily chunk down the field. West Virginia's relied way too much on chunking and moving down the field as opposed to creating big plays and really being explosive on offense. And the defense, same side. you got to find some athletic guys, some guys that are going to be able to create turnovers, you know, be able to cause havoc with their athleticism. But that, that's been the biggest missing component for this West Virginia team this past season as opposed to the last couple is they really didn't have a lot of playmakers on defense. They had, you know, Dante Stills up front. The defensive line was very good. Second and third level really was lacking guys that not only an experience, but guys that can make plays. You got to find some personnel. And then, of course, you know, you'd like to sure up some coaching in some areas. But I think that they feel good about the staff they have. It's just a matter of, you know, kind of plugging it in. They always say, you know, Jimmy's and Joe's beat the X's and O's. So I think that the more the better players you can bring in, uh, the, the more success West Virginia is going to be able to find. Yeah, I mean, I think you need a little bit of both, but obviously uh, uh, at the end of the day, if you've got the talent, that's certainly not going to hurt. Uh, like we mentioned, JT Daniels will be entering the transfer portal again after just one year in Morgantown. Do you foresee that the starting quarterback for West Virginia next season is currently on the roster, or is it somebody that they're going to bring in this offseason? I think both those guys are going to get a fair shake, uh, Garrett Green and uh, Nico. Both of them are going to have a chance to win that job. Will they bring in a transfer? I'd be surprised if they didn't, just in today's climate. Um, you like to try to get as much competition as possible. I don't think they bring in just a guy to bring in a guy. It's going to have to be additive. You know, it's really going to help them. But the thing is with these young quarterbacks, you can't keep kicking the can down the road. At some point, if you want to retain them, you've got to give them a chance to win the job. And I think that this spring is going to be that for West Virginia. Next year, obviously, is a is a big year for Neil Brown. You, the guy who hired you is gone. He's a new athletic director. Uh, your record is what it is, and there was a lot of speculation at the end of the season that, that he would not be retained. So obviously, there's not going to be a hotter seat in the Big Twelve, and obviously, and honestly, around the country than Neil Brown's heading into 2023. Um, it's a long ways off. There's a lot that's going to change. Players are going to come, going to go. A lot of changes. We don't even know the Big Twelve schedule as of yet, with four new schools coming in. Don't know who we're going to have. But I, I am curious. Do you believe that we'll be sitting here the same time next year uh, with West Virginia signing, uh, keeping Neil Brown? Or do you think West Virginia is one of the first teams out to market looking for a new head coach? I think it depends entirely on the results, as, as honestly as I can be with you. I think if West Virginia comes out, you know, they have to go on the road at Penn State to open, which is tough. I mean, it, in his defense, he has not get, gotten the easiest scheduling uh, since he's been the coach. But, I mean, that that's what you have to deal with. But if West Virginia goes out, starts one and three, one and two, I do wonder if you might see a quick book. Because you because you mentioned earlier, you can't wait around anymore. I mean, the, this, the now with the transfer window open in early December – and on top of that, signing day, you have to have a coach in place. It's, it's almost expedited the process a month before, two months before what it used to be. I uh, used to be able to wait to December and be fine. I don't think you can do that now. So I think it entirely depends on what West Virginia is able to do to remake this roster and how West Virginia performs next season. And I think there's optimism in that building that they can turn it around. Um, obviously, most coaches believe that. It's just a matter of going out and proving it. And if they can't, I think you could seriously look at West Virginia making a move because they have a new athletic director. He's willing to work with Neil Brown. 
He said that he's going to evaluate the program, but at some point you have to have success. Yeah. Uh, it's a question I've, I've had for West Virginia and we'll wrap up on this Keenan. I appreciate you for your, I appreciate your time today. Um, obviously four schools will be joining the conference next year. All new schedule. have no idea what that's going to be. It should be any time now we should get that schedule. Uh, with Cincinnati and UCF, Houston to some extent, but definitely West uh, Cincinnati and, and, and UCF. Do you see these additions to the Big 12, both in the next couple of years and moving forward, as beneficial to West Virginia, having two programs that, while not close to West Virginia, do provide some relatively more geographic partnerships? Obviously, Florida is a place that West Virginia has recruited well and a lot in the past. Do you see these additions as beneficial to West Virginia in the Big 12, maybe help help them out in some ways, um, or no effect at all or, or, or hurting West Virginia? I think you make an argument for all three of them uh, in, in a way. Uh, it's nice to have for West Virginia fans to have a, have a road game that's close. You know, in Cincinnati, there's – I wouldn't call it a rivalry, but they've played over the years, kind of like West Virginia and Louisville. There was a period there where, you know, it was hot and heavy between them, but I wouldn't necessarily call them a rival. But then again, you're elevating group of five programs to your level now. So you're recruiting against them, competing against them. That makes it a little bit more difficult. I, I'm not sure that either of those schools necessarily move the needle for West Virginia fans in terms of interest or excitement, like necessarily a Pitt, Virginia Tech, Maryland, you know, one of those schools would. But I think they will like the fact that they'll have a game every year in Cincinnati where, hey, if we want to drive to this road game, we can go. Yeah, it's a conversation we've had a lot on the show um, with the with our West Virginia show, Raspy Voice Kids. Um, just the lack of a true rivalry in the Big Twelve for West Virginia. Um, I know there's kind of the riot bowl with Iowa State. I know they talk about the game with Oklahoma, but lots of teams view Oklahoma as a rivalry. And I, and so my hope is, and I understand what the record with Cincinnati was back in the old Big East days. That my hope for West Virginia is that they find a true rival in in Cincinnati or even in UCF down there in Florida. Just someone that the fan base can really get excited about facing on a regular basis, similar to the way they do the their former rivalries like Pitt and Penn State and 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 Virginia Tech that they just they don't get to play as often anymore. I, I think that's something West Virginia really has missed out on since they joined the Big Twelve. Oh yeah, it definitely that that if you poll West Virginia fans, that is the only major thing that has worked against them when it comes to the Big Twelve. People love the culture, they love the fan bases of the other teams. It's, it was a chance for West Virginia really to shake some of those negative stereotypes that have been built over years, and a lot of it as Big Twelve fans have been able to find out really didn't have merit, but that hurts them. You know, when West Virginia fans talk about conferences, you know, they'd like to play Pitt, like to play Virginia Tech, Maryland, Syracuse, you know, teams they're familiar with over the years. And, you know, that doesn't happen overnight. You, you can't just build a rivalry overnight. And, and it, it it's different just even leading up to the backyard brawl this past year. You see Pitt fans. You interact with Pitt fans. You don't necessarily interact with Texas fans or Oklahoma fans or Oklahoma State fans. You know what I mean? So over time, it's it's something that, yeah, they're very excited about the competition level, excited about the money that West Virginia is making, you know, excited about the fact that Big 12 welcomed West Virginia with open arms. But at the same time, there's always going to be that group of fans that, you know, they're missing that game that really moves the needle for them every year. And while, while you can get that, if you can play these non-conference games, you also put yourself kind of at a disadvantage in a sense 
if you're playing two non-conference games against Power Five opponents every year. Yeah, eleven Power Five games on the on the schedule each year is not. I'm not saying I'm not sure it's helping West Virginia uh, as as much as it's nice to be able to play those rivalry games. Keenan, man, I really do appreciate your time. I know that you are very busy with everything going on right now. Obviously, uh, the transfer portal has kept everyone who covers uh, college athletics, especially recruiting, very, very busy. Do me a favor for the West Virginia fans and, and everyone else who's listening. Where can they check out all your work covering the Mountaineers? Uh, just go to wvsports.com. It's part of the Rivals Network, or you can follow me on Twitter at Rivals Keenan. Keenan, again, appreciate your time, man. I know you're busy. I uh, hope you guys – I, I would – I'm. I would love to see West Virginia find success, and and more than anything, I hope they can find themselves an in-conference rivalry soon. Podcast Network.